Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 2, Episode 62. Last week, I covered the people and places found in Genesis Chapter 35, specifically Bethel and Ephrath. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm circling back to cover Ugarit, fulfilling a promise I made a couple of episodes ago. And, before anyone writes in, I know I said I would cover Bethlehem this week, but you'll have to be patient. I'll get to that city next week. So let's get started. Ugarit was an ancient port city, located in what is today Syria, specifically in the north, not terribly far from Turkey. The uncovered ruins can be found in the modern city of Ras Shemra. As for that city, its name translates into English as Cape Fennel, paying homage to both its seaside location and a major crop found in the region. Just as it is today, in the era of the Old Testament, it was an important seaport, and, given that, Ugarit played an important role in the Hittite Empire, and it was mentioned in the history of Egypt. It could also be found in the annals uncovered on the island of Cyprus. Archaeological artifacts that include Mycenaean and Cypriot pottery attest to the trade and influence of those two cultures. It seems that Ugarit reached a peak between about 1450 and 1200 BC, a time thought to coincide with the era of Genesis chapter 35 which is why I'm covering it now. To be clear, Ugarit is not mentioned directly in the Old Testament, but its history is interwoven with many of the people and places in this section of the Bible, especially around the narrative of Genesis 35. So, despite the lack of any mention, I would really be doing you a disservice if I didn't cover it. Hopefully, by the time you get to the end of this episode, you will agree. Around 200 BC, the city was destroyed by an unknown, or better phrased, a yet-to-be-known force, probably the Sea Peoples, who I will cover, most likely when they impacted the Egyptian Empire. The collapse of the Ugaric Kingdom was one of the many kingdom collapses that occurred as the Bronze Age shifted to the Iron Age. I know I've mentioned it before, but only once or twice, and it certainly bears repeating. Times of technological change, such as the shift from the Bronze to the Iron Age, the Industrial Revolution, or the technological-slash-computer age we are currently experiencing, these are times of political, economic, and military upheaval. Keep that in mind when you read, or listen, or watch the events of today. And back to Ugarit. Ugarit was a walled city. In fact, the wall was constructed very early in its history, maybe as early as 6,000 BC. And the presence of walls signal a couple of things. First, there was an organized political structure. Second, at least a portion of the population was not nomadic. And finally, there was enough of an established trade system that merchants could live within the walls and trade for food, clothing, or other sustenance. Of course, the wall did not come about immediately upon the founding of the city. In fact, the location is thought to have been inhabited well before 6000 BC. And about that trade, of course, there was the port. And like so many of the other cities I've covered in the region, 
Uyghur was along many of the regional trade routes. And when you combine these two features, the port and the land-based trade routes, you can begin to see how the city connected landlocked territories to those, such as Cyprus, that could only be reached by boat. Combinations such as these lead to economic prosperity. As such, the kingdom centered on the city is believed to have peaked at about 770 square miles, or 2,000 square kilometers. More succinctly, think of a square with sides about 28 miles long. Or better yet, this area is about half the size of the smallest U.S. state, and that is Rhode Island. The trade routes along the seaport led to a bustling economy that is thought to have peaked between 1800 and 1200 B.C. At that time, it was trading with Egypt, Cyprus, Syria, the Hittites, and many smaller city-states on both the eastern Mediterranean as well as the Aegean Sea. Redundant for effect. Moving along. The first written evidence of the city was found in the nearby city of Ebla, and dates to around 1800 BC. And yes, that does not align with the 6000 BC date, but that date is from evidence such as pottery shards and the like. Its economic peak aligned with a thriving society in Egypt, and evidence has been uncovered that not only shows contact, but also how the two cultures influenced each other. This can be clearly seen in the art from the two societies. Evidence of the earliest contact between the two cultures dates to the Middle Kingdom of Pharaoh Sennacherib I, who ruled between 1971 and 1926 BC. This evidence is nothing more than a carnelian bead, which of course begs the question, what is a carnelian bead? Well, carnelian is a brownish-red, semi-precious mineral commonly used as a gemstone. I'll assume you know what a bead is. And as for the significance of this bead, sometimes something that small can communicate a message that spans millennia. Also, steles, as well as a small statuette, from the Egyptian pharaohs Sinuraset III and Amenhotep III, have been uncovered. But in the case of these two finds, it's unclear when they actually made it to Ugarit. Of course, I couldn't cover the history of the city without mentioning the Armana letters. So far, there have been three uncovered references to the port, one each to the pharaohs Amitimaru I, Nikmadu II, and Nikmadu's queen. These letters date to around 1350 BC. In fact, there was continuous contact between the city and both Egypt and Cyprus between the 16th and 13th centuries BC. At that time, it is thought that the population of the city was primarily Amorite, and therefore the language may have been a derivative of Amorite. Besides the Cyproids and Egyptians, also in the area at the time of their peak were the Hittites. So despite the absence of a trove of records proving such, it's probably a safe assumption that the two were in contact. Well, there is a little evidence to support this. The last known Bronze Age king of Ugarit, named Emirapai, ruled between about 1215 and 1180 BC. This was the same time that, that Supilulumia II ruled the Hittites. This is known from a letter from Emirapai, the Ugarit king, to the Hittite king. In the letter, 
the Ugarit King emphasizes the gravity of the threat facing many city-states in the region from an invasion of the Sea Peoples. Elrampai also pleads for assistance from the King of Alicia, stressing the dreadful situation in Ugarit. A portion of the letter reads, My father, behold, the enemy's ships came here. My cities were burned, and they did evil things in my country. Does not my father know that all my troops and chariots are in the land of the Hattai, and all my ships are in the land of Luca? Thus, the country is abandoned to itself. May my father know it. The seven ships of the enemy that came here inflicted much damage upon us. End quote. It's a bit unclear why Amarapai addressed the other ruler as father, except it may have been a sign of respect, or maybe the true meaning was lost in translation. And Alashai was a city-state that was often referred to in the Middle and Late Bronze Age cuneiform tablets. Apparently, it lay somewhere in the eastern Mediterranean, but the exact, definite location is unknown. Some researchers now think it was one in the same as Cyprus, or maybe a smaller area on the island. This theory is supported by researchers from Tel Aviv University who examined the clay tablets that were sent from Alicia to other regional rulers. Wherever it was, the city-state was a major source of trade goods, primarily copper, that made it as far as Egypt, the Levant, and Mesopotamia. Despite the pleas of Amarapai, no assistance was offered, and the city was burned to the ground at the end of the Bronze Age. And that was the end of the city. After its destruction, Ugarit's location was lost to the annals of history, and essentially the only history of it came from sources outside of the city. And this lasted for over 3,000 years, until 1928, when a farmer, by sheer happenstance, happened upon an ancient tomb while plowing. What he uncovered would eventually be excavated to reveal a cemetery within Ugarit. This find was located in the general vicinity of the port Minit al-Biyad. Overall, the site is a 65-foot or 20-meter high mound. Unfortunately, looters arrived before archaeologists. The first researcher on the scene was Leon Albanese from France, who arrived the same year. And that he was French made sense since Ugarit was located in the post-World War I French Mandate portion of the Levant. However, he only made a cursory examination. The first excavation of a more substantial size occurred the next year when another French archaeologist, this time Claude Schaefer, arrived. And Schaefer managed to supervise the excavations for 42 years until 1970. But to note, the work was suspended between 1940 and 1947 due to World War II. And, even after Schaefer's retirement in 1970, the work continued up through the beginning of the Syrian Civil War. As you would suspect, many items and locations were uncovered in the nearly half-century of digging. First, there were what would later be dubbed the Ugarit Archives, initially uncovered very early on, specifically in 1929. These archives provided a great deal of insight into the Canaanite religion, especially concerning the period just prior to the Israelite settlement. Also uncovered were religious buildings, 
But first, a short dive into the layout of the city. The ancient walled city was divided into quarters. The northeast quarter contained what were apparently three significant religious buildings, including two temples, one each for their deities Baal Hadad and Dagon. In their religion, Baal Hadad was considered the supreme god and was also the son of El. Dagon was their god of fertility and wheat. Also uncovered were 23 stele. Of these, nine stele were near the temple, and these included a well-known one depicting Baal with a thunderbolt. It's been a while since I posted an image on the podcast Facebook page, but this image will break that log. There were also four steles in the Temple of Dagon and ten more at other places around the city. The northeast quarter had a building referred to as a library, but this may have been the high priest's residence. There were also structures uncovered at the peak of the Acropolis, which contained many tablets with religious texts. It was these texts that provided the basis of understanding of the Canaanite religion. For example, what had been labeled the Baal Cycle represented Baal Hadid's destruction of Yam, who was their god of chaos. Yam was also their god for the sea. Baal's destruction of Yam and his subsequent ascension to power is considered the basis for their religious beliefs. This was similar to the other polytheistic religions of the region, where a warrior god emerges above the pantheon of gods to defeat chaos and bring order while at the same time establishing control over the other, now minor, gods. In addition to all these, also uncovered in the many excavations were religious texts that related to Hurrian songs, including a noteworthy hymn to their moon goddess, Nikal. This is considered to be possibly the oldest surviving extensive musical score in the world. The actual work is thought to be a series of two-toned intervals played upon a nine-string lyre. Who knew there was a field of musical archaeology? Now there's a specialty. The excavations revealed a royal palace of about 90 rooms, all arranged encircling eight enclosed courtyards. There were many large private residences uncovered as well. Then there were the cuneiform tablets. Unlike other regional cities, most of these tablets were not found in a single location. But the great majority are from about the same time period, which was the last years of the city's existence, prior to its destruction by the Sea Peoples, so around 1200 BC. Like I alluded to, several libraries were found. There was a palace library and a temple library, so far not terribly unusual. The unusual part were the two private libraries, so far the only such finding from that era anywhere in the world. The first is thought to have been the pride of a diplomat named Rapinu. The second apparently had an unnamed, or at least yet to be determined, owner. In total, the libraries at Ugarit contained diplomatic, legal, economic, administrative, scholastic, literary, and religious texts. Very comprehensive. Also worth noting, many of the found tablets were written in Sumerian and Hurrian, which was unusual. Not unusual, though, were the tablets written in Akkadian. Remember, this language was the diplomatic language of the region and era. Of course, 
It was also not surprising that most of the tablets were written in Ugarit. Well, except that until the excavation, no one knew that this language existed. So maybe it was surprising. More on the language in a bit. Finally, not all of the tablets immediately fell into the hands of the researchers. Some were initially uncovered by looters and made it to the black market. Who knows what they contained? Also found in the dig was an Egyptian sword with the name of the pharaoh Miraneftah on it. The name, along with the vertical depth of the find, demonstrate that there were indeed relations between the city and Egypt at the time. It also shows that the sword did not arrive there at a later date. As a note, Miraneftah was the fourth ruler of the 19th dynasty of ancient Egypt. He ruled from 1213 to 1203 BC. Therefore, this 10-year date range serves to bookmark the dig level and all of the other artifacts found in the same area and at the same relative depth. An individual cuneiform tablet shows that Ugarit was destroyed after the death of the same Egyptian pharaoh, Merenetah, so after 1203 BC. Other finds show that the city was destroyed before the 8th year of Pharaoh Ramses III, which would place it around the year 1178 BC. Some researchers, relying on radiocarbon dating and these artifacts, believe that the destruction of the city to have occurred in a two-year window between 1192 and 1190 BC. After Schaefer's departure in 1973, an archive containing around 120 tablets was discovered. Then, in 1994, more than 300 additional tablets dating to the end of the Late Bronze Age were discovered. One more note, the tablets show a parallel between ancient Canaanite and Israelite cultural practices. For example, the practice of marrying your dead brother's widow, the giving of the eldest son a larger share of the inheritance, and redeeming the firstborn son were practices common to the people of Ugarit. To be concise, though, these practices were not limited to just the Ugarit people and the Hebrews, but could also be found in several other cultures in the region. So that's the history of the port city of Ugarit, but what about its culture? First, there is the alphabet, which is somewhat similar to the Phoenician alphabet, and, like so many of the other cultures that developed in the broad region, they relied on cuneiform tablets to record daily events, especially commercial transactions. Their specific alphabet had 30 letters which are thought to correspond with sounds. No surprise there. And with an alphabet comes a language. As for that language, we know it primarily from the previously mentioned uncovered cuneiform tablets. These show that the language existed at least between the 14th and 12th centuries BC. And, when the city was destroyed, their language essentially disappeared too. This tends to happen when such a language's use is confined to a specific geography and culture. Overall, Ugaritic is usually classified as a Northwest Semitic language, which makes it related to Hebrew, Aramaic, Phoenician, and others. This classification is due both to its structure and the geography of its use. And this should surprise no one, as the two, use and geography, are so well intertwined, it's impossible to separate the two. 
there is also the structure within the language. While I don't normally delve too deep into language structure, a minute on the subject will hurt no one and should provide some insight. Regarding its structure, the grammar is very similar to the ancient Arabic as well as Akkadian. The language has both masculine and feminine gender, but does not seem to possess a neuter form. The structure of the nouns, adjectives, verbs, and numbers, not the book, are also similar to other Northwest Semitic languages. The word order within the sentences also bears a resemblance to the other regional languages. In the language, in showing how it probably developed from a combination of other regional languages, were no less than seven different scripts. These seem to have been sourced from Egyptian and Luwian hieroglyphs in Cypro-Minonan, Sumerian, Akkadian, and Hurrian cuneiform, and from the language their literature can be constructed. What is known about Ugaritic literature is recreated from the cuneiform tablets recovered in the city's libraries. First, there were the normal economic documents, such as deeds recording land transfers. There were also letters, some international treaties, and a stack of administrative lists. And there was the literature of the culture. Such literature includes mythological text, which were evolved enough to have been written in a poetic narrative. Think of an early version of the Iliad. And, like you would expect with uncovered ancient documents, not everything was retrieved in its entirety. In some cases, only fragments were found. In the case of Ugarit, these included several poetic works, which contained tales entitled The Legend of Karet, The Legend of Danil, and the Baal Tales that detailed Baal-Hadid's conflicts with Yelm and Mott. And that's probably a good place to end this episode. Join me next week when I'll cover the ancient history of Bethlehem, probably the most well-known city in the New Testament. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, I hope you will go to iTunes or wherever you receive the podcast from and leave a positive review. These reviews help to boost the podcast ranking within iTunes and therefore helps others to find the podcast. You can also find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page. If you're enjoying the podcast, do surely subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released. Thanks for listening and have a great week. Thank you.